Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning to speak to us. We know that your word never returns void and it accomplishes everything that you've set out for it to accomplish. We pray that we be sanctified by your word. We pray that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We pray that we would be moldable and malleable in your hands and that you would pray and pray that you would continue to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. It's in his name and washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. This is a very interesting scene where John is looking into, gets a vision of the ascension from the heavens perspective. It's interesting that the apostle John had actually been a witness on earth to the physical ascension of Jesus at the end of, uh, and then the gospels and the first part of Acts that he had seen Jesus ascend into heaven. And he had that earthly perspective of watching that. And now, probably 30 to 40 years later, as he's writing this book, he's given a glimpse of what that moment looked like from heaven. One of the things that's really helpful for us when we go through the book of Revelation is to recognize it's not all written chronologically. That often we see different camera angles, if you will, on the same event. And this is an amazing event in human history where Jesus having been crucified and having raised from the dead and having spent time with his disciples is now ascended into heaven and we get to see that scene and hear and see what's going on from that perspective. You know, it's interesting when Dennis Johnson in his commentary on this, he was talking about the Wizard of Oz and he said, you know, at the end of the Wizard of Oz, hopefully this isn't a spoiler alert for anyone, but in the Wizard of Oz you find out that when they get to Oz, and they go and they pull behind the curtain and see who's there, who's this one who's been doing all of these things, it's just some guy, and he's been manipulating them, and he's been deceiving them, and he's not really been truthful with them, and he's not really that great, and it's a massive disappointment, and then they find out that we really had the power to go back all along, we just spent three hours, (laughs) and we really had the power to go back all along. And he's comparing and contrasting the reality of looking behind the curtain here and finding out this isn't a disappointment. This is remarkable that who we find out is really behind the scene and really who is doing all of the things of history and who's really doing all the things for our salvation and who's really bringing about the reality of things in the world and things in our salvation. And so John gets to peek behind the curtain, if you will, and to see what's going on here. And revelation really kind of means an unveiling or disclosing, if you will. It's being revealed to us more and more about who our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is. We celebrate and rehearse a faith that has observable events in history. The ten plagues of Egypt happened on the stage of history. They were observable. Crossing of the Red Sea, the falling of the walls of Jericho the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are all observable events that happened in space and time. And history is, uh, or the scripture is constantly revealing to us more and more. And here, the book of Revelation in particular is showing us something about who the person and work of Jesus Christ is. 
And so one of the keys to understanding Revelation as we go through it is to not so much get bogged down in all the little details, but try to figure out what does this scene mean? What happens in this scene? And it's almost unmistakable as you read this to recognize what's happening in the scene. So don't get bogged down in every little possible detail. The main thrust of it is what happens. What happens in this scene? And there's really three scenes that unfold for us. First, we'll title the first one, The Pit of Despair. The second one, The Proclamation of Peace. And the third one, The Praise of Worthiness. First is The Pit of Despair. Second, The Proclamation of Peace. And third, The Praise of Worthiness. So let's hear now the word of God. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands on thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and to honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So far the reading of God's holy word. Well, the first scene we want to look at is the pit of despair, really the problem of the story. In chapter 4, John had seen an image of God the Father sitting on the throne, the Creator and the Almighty, and now he's seeing God the Son. But in chapter 4, he had seen God the Father being worshipped as the Creator, as the Ruler. And sitting there in his right hand was a scroll, and it was written... uh, within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And much ink has been spilled trying to dissect every detail of this, but uh, clearly what's important is that it was unopenable. (laughs) 
It was written within and on the back. Roman wills at that time often had the content of them written on two sides of it. And it was sealed with signet rings, like a last will and testament, almost like seven of them sealing this. Seven different witnesses testifying to what this is. It's trustworthy. It's obviously really important. The image that you get is this is important. The creator of the universe is holding something in his right hand that you can see writing on it. You can see that it's been sealed. You can see that it's been authorized. What does it contain? What does it say? What is it? Right? You want to know what's in there. The image that we have here is actually pulling from images in the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel said, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So Ezekiel had seen a similar image, and also Daniel. Daniel had said, or the Lord had said to Daniel, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And the text goes on to say, and I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, I, my Lord, what shall the outcome of these things be? And the Lord said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So imagine now that there's the scroll that's pictured throughout redemptive history in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant with his writing on it, and no one's been able to open it. And Daniel wanted to know, and he was told, seal it up. It's going to be closed until the end, until the last time, until someone else comes who is going to open up. The tension running throughout history, what's in this thing? What is it? What's going on? What's going on here? It has to do with God's unfolding plan. And the question that's asked really tells us what's the meaning, what's going on here. A mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this? It must be a big deal. The scriptures have been talking about it. The Lord of the universe has something in his hand. He's sitting there, the creator, the all-powerful one, the holy one, Yahweh, is sitting there with something in his hand. Who is worthy to open this? Who can open this up and tell us what it is? Worth really has to do with merit. Who deserves to open that? Who has the authority to open that? Who has the power or the right to open that? Who can uncover and reveal the plan? Tell us the revelation of what this is. And the question is not only who is worthy to open the scroll, but in other words, who is worthy to execute whatever it says? Who's worthy to execute or bring about the plan that is revealed here? Who's willing and able to carry out God's plan of both judgment and salvation. Who deserves to receive from the Father's hand all authority in heaven and on earth? And the horrible realization, the pit of despair, is that no one's found worthy. No one in heaven, no one on earth, No one under the earth, not only to open it, but not even to look into it. How hopeless. How despairing. The words of life, the words of judgment, the words of the future, something crucial. And no one's found worthy. You could pray to everybody who had 
been on the stage of human history up to that point. Adam, Eve, Noah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Moses, Joseph, Abraham, Rahab, Ruth, none of them. None of them are worthy. Nobody's found worthy to open this. And so John, seeing this vision, weeps. In anguish, sobbing uncontrollably. It's that same language that's used of Mary at the tomb of Lazarus or the women at the tomb of Jesus or Peter when the rooster crowed after he had betrayed his Lord three times. Hope lost. Imagine standing at the grave of Jesus when they first put him in there not realizing that he was raised three days later and you thought he was going to be the one and now he's in the tomb. Despair, weeping, sobbing. Nobody can be found anywhere. That's what the text is making clear. Nobody in heaven, on earth, under the earth. There's no other space in the universe. Nobody is found worthy to open this. So John can't receive the knowledge of what's written on that scroll. He can't pass it on to the church that he's pastoring. He can't do anything about it. This really should highlight to us that there is no hope apart from Jesus, is there? Jesus is going to be the next character in the next scene. But that desolation, that despair, that apart from him, there is no hope. It is despair. It is desolation. It is hopeless. But fortunately, our text doesn't end there. Fortunately, history doesn't end there. Fortunately, salvation doesn't end there because the very next scene is the proclamation of peace. Into the weeping, into the despair, into the anguish, into the hopelessness comes the gospel. A word of peace, a word of comfort, a word of good news. One of the elders says, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the announcement of the king, that Jesus has come, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that was promised of this particular line. Actually, Matthew's genealogy actually traces that for us. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that was promised. He is the root of David. He is the son of the king. He has conquered. He's the promised one. This is a time of fulfillment. Weep no more. There is one. And it was one that was promised long ago. It was one who was promised to Judah, one who was promised to David, one who was promised to Adam and Eve. A lion. Kingly, royal, dynasty, a ruler. Like All of these images should be coming up when we think of a lion from Scripture. He's the fulfillment of the promises. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Psalms, all of it looking forward to this moment. Daniel was to seal up the contents, and now it is to be opened up. Daniel was to seal it up till the last days. Beloved, do you want to know when the last days are? When Christ came. 
We're in the last days. And so what had been sealed up is now revealed. It's in Christ and in him alone, the promised one who has now come, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, risen, ascended into heaven. Historical facts on the stage of history. And John saw all of those from earth, and now he's getting a look at what this looks like from heaven when the king comes in. It's now opened up. It's this one. It's Christ and no other. He is the lion. He is the lamb. Don't try to overinterpret his vision, much like you probably don't want to overinterpret your own dreams. You get the gist of them. You understand what they're meaning. He says there's a lion and is it a lion? Is it a lamb? If you think of it like trying to mesh together animals from the zoo, you're going to get confused. He saw the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he said, behold. The angel said, behold. We don't use that word very often anymore, right? William and I, when we go out to lunch, we say, behold, look at this. But it's significant in Scripture, behold. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We get so easily distracted, don't we? That behold should capture us and draw our attention or our focus. One of the reasons for the Lord's Day is really to hit a pause button every week, to draw our attention and a focus. Behold, behold the Christ, the one who died for your sins, the one who rose again, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and raising for you. Behold, look, see, believe, come. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. He's worthy. He merited the right. He earned the right to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The image here is really of the four living creatures representing all the inhabitants of the earth and the 24 elders representing the entire redeemed community, the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, old and the new covenant together. The promise from the very beginning that in Abraham all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of creation and all of recreation celebrating together that this king, this lion, this lamb was slain and is now standing. Isn't that a fascinating juxtaposition? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. The conquering lion now appears as a lamb standing, which really conjures up images of a lamb throughout Scripture, doesn't it? The Passover lamb of the Exodus that was both a sign of salvation and judgment. If you didn't have the blood over your doorpost, then the angel of death was going to come in judgment of you. If you did have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, you were going to be saved. Also, the suffering lamb that we hear about throughout Isaiah that was slaughtered 
for the sins of his people, that willingly went to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. This Passover lamb, this suffering lamb, is also a powerful and conquering lamb. That's where we get these images of these seven horns, immense power. Seven is often the number of completion or perfection, perfect in power. The one who is mighty, the one who is full of strength and power to save. Seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. In other words, it's, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. He sees all things. The people that think they're going to get away from it and get away having pulled the wool over the eyes of this one, they're not. Because he sees everything and he judges everything. And the ones who think, well, can he really see me in my need? Can he really see me? in my position when I'm being oppressed or mistreated or whatever. He does see. He does notice. He sees it all. And he's powerful and he's mighty. He's a conquering lamb from the tribe of Judah, a a warrior we get. But there's a surprise that he's a slain lamb standing. It was through the slaughter that we have our salvation. It's through his being slain that we have our salvation. It's through his sacrificial death, through his offering up of himself, that we have salvation. He fully paid the price for our sins by going and being slaughtered for our transgressions, for our sins. And so he was slain, but he didn't stay slain. He rose again showing his power over death, showing his power over sin, showing his power over Satan. It's this one that we serve. It's this one that's the lamb. It's this one that's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's this one that we worship and serve. It's this one that's being announced to us. Turn, if you will, back to Revelation chapter 1. John sees an opening vision in the first chapter of Revelation that is really unpacked throughout the rest of the book. But look at these last couple verses of chapter 1. Revelation 1, starting verse 17. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that amazing to think about? Fear not. So often when people read this book, they get afraid. This book was given to the church so that you wouldn't be afraid. So that you would have comfort, so that you would know. You get to peek behind the curtain and see what's going on. And it's not just some secret that we keep from others. We're publicly proclaiming the secret's been revealed. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He died. He rose. He's ruling. He's reigning. And there's life in him and in him only. And so he comes to us and says, fear not, little flock. It's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's my pleasure to come and to die for you. It's my pleasure to 
preserve you. It's my pleasure to save you. You're going to have difficulties in this life. The rest of the book of Revelation fleshes that out. The way the world treated Jesus is the way that it's going to treat his bride. But fear not. I have overcome the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Fear not, little flock. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, when you read this, you should be terrified. You should be terrified at the reality of what happens when this king returns or what happens if you die, having rejected the king, rejecting his sacrifice, rejecting the gospel promises. But beloved, you shouldn't be afraid. You know the one. You know the one who was slain. You know the one who's risen. You know the one who is ruling and reigning. Beloved, we do not serve or worship a dead hero. We serve a living Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the text says he's alive forevermore. Beloved, he is risen. He is risen. The third and final point is the praise of worthiness. The praise of worthiness. It's dramatic that he takes the scroll and the deafening despair of the throne room erupts into glorious praise and worship. This is the right response to the announcement and the proclamation of salvation. The four living creatures representing creation, the 24 elders representing the new creation, just break forth into a new song, meaning a new era has come. A new era has come, and we're living in the last days. The next thing to happen on the redemptive historical calendar is the return of the king. We're not looking for another savior. We're not looking for another messiah. We're waiting the return of the king. His kingdom came in him. That was the tick of the kingdom, and the talk of the kingdom will happen when he returns. And in between is the last days, the last hour. And we go out and we preach the gospel of good news that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And so we sing a new song. We're not looking for someone else who's co-worthy or someone else that is worthy in addition to Jesus. It's Jesus and him alone. We sing of our deliverance. We sing of our Savior. We sing of our salvation. We have reason for worship. We have reason for praise because it says he is conquered. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll. In other words, he's the one who can execute the plan of salvation. He's the one who can bring about judgment. He's the one who can bring about the fullness of our salvation. The lamb is able and worthy. He's sovereign in his power and in his might. He has already defeated our enemies. So we praise him because he has conquered. We also praise him because he was slain, it says. And by his blood, he has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, he set us free at a price. He's ransomed us. He's bought us. He's made us his own through his own blood. And it's not just us or our people group. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, which was the promise all along. To Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. 
And so we confessed even the Apostles' Creed this morning with brothers and sisters who said the same thing in languages throughout the world. Another reason to praise him is because he's made us a kingdom and priest to our God. He made us this. It wasn't a task. If you do this, then you'll be priests, or then you'll be kings, or then you'll be saved, or then you'll rule. He comes first and foremost and says, I bless you. I've made you a kingdom. I've made you priests. That's the starting line. Not the reward at the end, but out of the gates. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are beloved. You are justified. You are mine now and forever. Now in light of that, go and serve. Go and love. Go and share those things. Not as a reward at the end, but a gift at the beginning. He has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. And note that the song is addressed to the Lamb. It's addressed to Jesus, the one that was slain, the one that was slaughtered, the one that ransomed us with his own blood. And the voices of creation in the church is added to the voice of thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads of angels. And they celebrate his fullness, seven different things, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. In other words, he's worthy of all praise, perfect praise, for who he is and for what he's done. The first four really are resources that qualify him to exercise his authority. He's powerful, he's wealthy, he's wise, and he's mighty. And the next three really have to do with responses to his worthiness. We honor him. We bring glory to him. We bless him for who he is and for what he's done. Imagine a whole cacophony of praise to Jesus Christ for who he is. No mere creature could ever possibly possess such glory. But what's remarkable to us is that Jesus is God and man. Who better to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God than one who is both? Not a sinful humanity, but he is holy God and he is fully human. He reconciles us in a way that no one else could because he's both parties. He is human and he's God. And our sins were put on him and his righteousness is given to us. And he says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth Right? where they could find nobody worthy before. Now all of those are praising, singing to the Father and the Son, to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and the Lamb, blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. They fell down and worshipped him. What else could we do? The vision ends with all of creation and the church and the angels giving their amen to the worthiness of Jesus. We share by God's grace in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our exalted Jesus, the divine right, the divine honor, the divine privilege to be able to approach this throne room and to be able to bring our praise and our petitions and requests to him. As we'll read in just a moment when we go to the Lord's Supper, not because we are worthy in ourselves, but we're clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness, the lamb that was slain. 
You know, it's interesting if we were to go on and read the rest of Revelation. It talks about weeping again. When the king comes, there will be no more reason for tears. There's still a time and a reason for tears in our world, isn't there? We heard of some this morning. All of you have them in your life. But it's amazing when we get to the talk of Christ's coming, his return. Revelation says that death shall be no more. Mourning and crying shall be no more. Pain shall be no more. Imagine there being no more. You, would never, you will never sin again. You will never be sinned against again. And you will never live in a sin-cursed world again. It's unimaginable to us. Because we sin every day. We're sinned against every day. And we've lived in a sin-cursed world every day. But imagine where there's no more weeping. And it says God himself will wipe away your tears. We're free from bloodshed, free from hatred, free from racism, free from sexism, free from sex trafficking, free from murder, free from abortion, free from impatience, free from hostility and lying and deceit and gossip and slander and divorce and illness and cancer and AIDS and Alzheimer's and heart attacks and suicides and loneliness and persecution, and terrorism, gone. Weep no more. Fear not, little flock. He is risen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable vision of Jesus' entrance into your throne room after having paid the penalty for our sin and defeated our enemies on our behalf. And Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes, that we may see Jesus, that you would lift our hearts, that you would attune our ears to hear your gospel, that you attune our lips to sing your praise. We pray that you would conform us ever more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would seek to be faithful witnesses to those around us that don't yet know you, Father. And we ask that you would use your word and your spirit to give them eyes to see and hearts to believe and minds to understand. And we ask all these things.